Well, you're probably wondering what are these letters about. And that, that was actually, Ben, that was, that was good. That was a good joke. The postman. I thought at first you were using some unfamiliar Australian term that we didn't quite understand. But uh, that was a good job on the joke on that one. Thanks for that. So what indeed are these letters about? Well, R-E, re. Um, what, what in the world is a re? It sounds like perhaps half a thought, like I ran out of time this week and I just couldn't quite finish getting ready for the message. Well, you might also be thinking, well, re, re what? Well, I can tell you this. I can tell you that re is a word, that if you are playing Scrabble, you can actually put re on the board and it counts. It's a legal word. It's only worth two points, so you might want to work a little harder than that. <laughs> Even triple word score, the most you can hope for is six, so it's not worth very much. Uh, but it is actually a legal word that you can use in Scrabble. And we find it in a variety of uses, actually. It's not common, but it does show up in a variety of uses. For example, it is the second note on a music scale, right? Do, re, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, right? Re. Uh, you may also have received a letter at times that includes the abbreviated form of regarding, R-E colon, R-E regarding your promotion or regarding your son's behavior at school this week. We've had some of those in the past. If you are into the world of science, maybe a doctor, a chemist, you might know that RE is the symbol for the element uh, rhenium, which is a metallic element used in the creation of uh, electronic connections. So it does have a number of uses, but for our purpose, it is actually a prefix, a prefix, a, a few letters that are added to a root word that change the meaning somehow. A prefix that makes a word mean to to do again, or to repeat, or to do over. And in practice, we may find it in things such as to redo, or to to do over and over again, as in an athlete who's in training, who needs to do something over and over again to strengthen a muscle, or to increase their endurance. We may find it in the case of rethink, where we need to go back and look at the evidence again, and then that changes our understanding of something. Or reorientate, where the path we're currently on doesn't feel right. There, there's something off. There's something that just isn't working out for us in our life. It's, it's causing us to have struggles time and time again, and we need to perhaps step back, reorientate, and go in a new direction. So this, this prefix re has a powerful impact upon words, to redo, to rethink, to, to reorientate. But those words also have their place in this thing we call discipleship. The discipleship, which is this process by which those who have chosen to become followers of Jesus Christ allow themselves to grow in mind, in heart, and in action to be more like him. This process of discipleship where we start to become more like him. Now the first people who ever entered into this form of discipleship with Jesus were the 12 apostles. The, the 12 guys that we read about in the uh, first few books of the New Testament who were called by Jesus, who, who walked with him for a few years, but then were then given the powerful message to take forth to the entire world afterwards. Now, we know some of these guys. We know some of these disciples. But it's not very often I can meet somebody who actually names all 12 disciples. It's, it's, it's hard to find that. And I understand it's hard to remember lists of names. Most of us can't remember the 12 disciples. Most of us can't remember the seven dwarfs for that matter. Uh, a lot of us can't remember uh, Santa's reindeer, which we're only 100 days away from Christmas, so we might want to freshen ourselves on the Santa's reindeer. So we'll take a test, okay? So really quickly, who can remember the name of Santa's 
reindeer. I'll start you off with Rudolph. There's mine. Any others? Nixon, Donner, Dasher, Blitzen, Prancer, Comet, Cupid, Donner. Okay, there's nine. Is there nine or is there ten? Nine? I think there's actually ten. You're forgetting one. You're forgetting the uh, olive. Remember olive? Olive, the other reindeer. You used to laugh and call Rudolph names. <laughs> no? Okay. Olive is the tenth reindeer. <laughs> Anyways, going back to the disciples. Uh, a lot of us have our time remembering the names. We remember the prominent ones. You know, uh, Peter and James and John. And, of course, who can forget Judas, right? We remember these sorts of names. But who were these guys? And what in the world qualified them for this monumental task to take the good news to all the world? Because when we meet these guys and when we study them, it turns out they're really just ordinary guys. They're really ordinary people just like you and I, who come from diverse backgrounds, who have diverse personalities and characteristics and abilities. And from a human perspective, they're not much more than just a motley crew that was brought together. But the time they spent with Jesus changed them. It completely changed them from the time that each of them was called at point A to point B where they are given the great commission to go into all the world. Something was radically different within them. And I think what was different was that in that time from point A to point B, they had the opportunity to witness the miracles. They had the chance to to hear and understand the parables. They listened to Jesus offer new teachings on old concepts. They were there when he confronted the religious elite. And this led them to reconsider. This led them to a point where they had to have a renewal of mind and heart and passion. So that when they went out to call people to repentance and to reaffirm their faith in the risen Lord. And this reworking in their lives is confirmed by the actions of the people that encountered them following this. We read about this in, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where it says that when the crowds saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that these were uneducated common men. And so they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. These were common, ordinary men who astonished the crowds. And the only conclusion the crowds could come to is, well, they've been with Jesus. So something has changed. Now, during this 12-week series, we're going to get better acquainted with these 12 disciples. We're going to take one apostle per week and look at his biography a little bit and see what reach his ministry had. And we're also going to reconsider one encounter or one theme related to that apostle that contributed to this refocusing of their mind, of their hearts, and of their actions. And it's my prayer that as we walk through this 12-week journey, that we also will experience even just a glimpse of that same reforming so that we will be better prepared, that we'll be better impassioned to go out in the power of God to reveal the good news to all people that we encounter. Does it sound like a worthwhile journey to go on to start off this fall? I'm really excited about it, and I hope that you will be very blessed and encouraged and challenged by it as well. So let's jump right into this week. Now, if you were to look at the first three chapters of the New Testament, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will find a list of the 12 disciples in each of them with slight variations in order. But in all three lists, the very first person listed is Peter. Peter is first, so we'll begin with him today. Peter was from a town called Bethsaida, which was a simple fishing village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. His, his father, John, and his brother, Andrew, were fishermen. And so all three of these guys worked together uh, in the family business of catching fish. Now, Peter was married, and a little later on in his encounter with Jesus, Jesus would actually heal his mother-in-law, who, who lived in a town called Capernaum, which was just a short distance from where he lived in Bethsaida. Now, Jesus frequented the area, so it wasn't all that unusual for, for Peter to bump into Jesus, because Jesus frequented the area, and, and Peter had encountered Jesus a few times prior to the passage we read today where that call actually comes from. And during one of these previous encounters, Jesus looked at Peter and said to him, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Translated means Peter. Now, now Cephas and, and Peter literally means rock. But Peter was anything but a rock. You see, he was known, especially at this time, as being very impulsive, as essentially being unstable. But later on, if we follow his story, he becomes a pillar of the early church. And so we can look at this and think that Jesus was actually not naming him for who he was, but Jesus was naming Peter for who he was to become. And as we read about Peter in the Bible, he takes on this role of leadership amongst the 12 apostles. He, he quite often becomes the spokesperson for the 12 guys. He becomes one of Jesus' closest friends. He's one of the, the inner three with Peter, James, and John, who only those guys were invited to encounter certain things that happened in Jesus' ministry, such as the raising of Jairus' daughter, such as the transfiguration. And at the end of Jesus' time on earth, when he was crying and praying out in agony in the garden, these are the three guys he brought with him for comfort. So Peter was a close friend of Jesus. Many people can relate to Peter. They look at Peter and they think, well, that, 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 that eagerness and that zeal to serve is, is so much like what I feel within my heart. But that often got Peter in trouble as well. And each time Peter would zealously step forth and then find himself in a bit of a trouble, it actually was an opportunity for Jesus to extend grace. It was an opportunity for Jesus to come alongside Peter and to disciple him so that he could become the leader he was destined to be. You know, for example, Peter surprised everybody when he, when he stepped out of the boat and goes to walk on water towards Jesus, but then he starts to sink. But Jesus reaches out his hand to save him. At the, at the Last Supper, Peter refused to have his feet washed by Jesus. He goes, no, you shall never wash my feet. But then Jesus says, well, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter does this big pendulum swing. Well, then wash all of me, Jesus. Just wash all of me. Peter swore he would stand by Jesus no matter what, yet we know he denied him three times. And yet, again, Jesus reaches out his hand and restores. After the resurrection, John outran Peter to the tomb, but Peter ran in first. At Pentecost, Peter delivers the first open-air sermon, and 3,000 people believed and were baptized that day. And then as Peter's preaching continues... Following Pentecost, he's arrested two times for preaching. He's thrown in prison a couple of times, but even that can't silence him. Now, unlike others, Peter did not travel too far from home following during his missionary journeys. He really stayed in what we would consider to be modern-day Israel. But even though geographically he didn't travel far from home, his reach was extensive. Because in the Bible, he's credited with writing two books, First and Second Peter, which were letters he had written. 
And it's also, he's considered to have helped and assisted Mark in the writing of his gospel. But also the, the Catholic Church has, has looked at Peter and that idea of him being the rock. And they look at Peter as being the very first pope. And they look to him to gain theological basis for papal authority. Now in the end, Peter was executed. He was executed by Emperor Nero, where following this great fire that destroyed so much of the city of Rome around 64 AD, Nero needed someone to blame for the fire. And it was a time of incredible persecution upon the Christian church, and so it was an easy scapegoat. And so he blamed the fire on the Christians, and shortly thereafter, Peter was sentenced to be killed. And the way that he was sentenced to be killed was by crucifixion. And while Peter wasn't able to choose the form of his execution, he had a request, which, as we are told, his request was honored. He said, I will not die in the same manner as my Lord and Savior. And so, as legend holds it, he was crucified upside down upon the cross, and so not to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus Christ. Now, in this brief synopsis of Peter's life and of his ministry, we see a man who was initially focused solely upon fishing. He was a fisherman with his brother and his father and their boats and their nets. But when he encountered Jesus, everything changed. Everything changed, and there was a complete refocusing of his life's purpose and of his life's passion. And he went from fishing for sardines and perch to seeking out those who did not yet know Jesus, which we read about and heard earlier in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now in this account of Peter being called to follow Jesus. Peter's at the end of a long night of fishing with his brother and his father, and and they just pulled their boats up on the shore. And they notice that a large crowd has gathered on the shore, and and there's some commotion in the village. And now it's not very often you come back from fishing and there's a welcoming party for you, so they figure there must be something else going on. You know, perhaps the Roman soldiers are back in town and stirring up trouble, or or maybe there's there's some crooked practices going on in the market and the people are rebelling. But nope, then Peter sees it's Jesus. Jesus is back in town, and, and he's, he's teaching, and, and that explains it. Because as Jesus' notoriety had grown, so too had the crowds, because people just loved to hear Jesus teach. And Peter did too, and, and if he had the time, he would have gone and joined the crowds to listen, but there was work to do. Now, normally after he came back from fishing, he'd have to unlaw, unhaul this huge load of fish, because they were pretty good fishermen after all, but, but on this particular night, it was anything but productive. It was... Nothing more than stressful and tiring and all for naught because they had caught nothing. The only work left them to do really was to to stand in the shallow water and clean the nets and get ready for the next evening when they will go out and try again. Now fortunately for Peter though, Jesus had chosen to teach right by the seashore. And so Peter was able to stand in the shallow water cleaning his nets, doing his work, and he could still hear Jesus teaching while he stood there cleaning his nets. It was kind of like listening to a podcast at work. It, it helps to distract maybe a little bit and relieve some of that, that, that frustration that you might be feeling. But after a bit, as Jesus is talking and Peter's cleaning his nets, there's, there's silence. So then Peter looks up for a second and see what's happening. He looks, and Jesus is sitting in his boat. And so as they lock eyes, and Peter gives them a bit of a quizzical expression, not sure what to say, Jesus says, Peter, the, the people are too numerous, and they're, they're kind of pressing in. Perhaps it would be better if I speak offshore a little bit. Could you, just, could you just push me out a little? And so impulsively, Peter 
agrees, and he finds himself suddenly with a front row seat as Jesus teaches from his boat. So Jesus continues to teach, but, but then when he had finished, Peter was about to hop out and pull the boat back to shore, but Jesus stops him. And he goes, no, Peter, actually, why don't you pull out a little bit into the deep? And let's go fishing. Go out there and drop your nets for a catch. Now, Peter is stunned by this. He's thinking, fishing? Now? We just went fishing, and we caught absolutely nothing. And besides, the conditions aren't even right. Like, like it's daylight. You don't fish during the daytime. You fish in the evening. You fish at nighttime. And you want to go to the deep? We don't fish for fish in the deep. You fish near the shore where it's more shallow, and they come closer to the surface. And you want to go to the deep? Oh, to the deep. What does this carpenter know about fishing? But nevertheless, out of respect for Jesus, Peter agrees, and they head out fishing. Now, when they arrive in the deep waters, out of pure obedience, Peter drops down the nets, expecting nothing. But as the nets spread out to their full reach, they, they suddenly jerk violently, and the boat is starting to shake a bit, and, and, and they startle them, and they start to look and figure out what is happening. They realize the nets are full. So they start trying to pull them in, but as they pull them in, the nets start to break. And so, so Peter's trying to figure out, how do I save this catch? How do I save my nets? And, and so he thinks, my brother and my father are back at shore. So he starts waving wildly, trying to get their attention. And, and they, they see him from the shore, and they're thinking, oh, what has Peter got himself into now? But they say, well, we've got to go check on him. So they make their way out towards where Peter is. And as they approach, they can just see the top of the water is alive with fish that are jumping, and, and the net is at capacity. So they spring into action, and they, they come up alongside Peter, and they, and they drop their nets underneath his to, to strengthen the load. And then they start pulling the fish in. That adds support so they can get the fish in. But there's so much weight that both boats start to tip in, and they almost sink. But finally, they get the boat full of fish. Emergency averted. Peter takes a breath. He checks on his father. He checks on his brother, makes sure they're okay. And in that moment, reality starts to descend upon him of what has just happened. This is no ordinary man who is standing in this boat with him. And he realizes that he is in divine presence. And so the reality of what has just happened causes him to, to turn to Jesus, and he, and, and he just drops to his knees in, in the fish and in the water, and he bows before Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Now, Jesus is not sure where he's supposed to depart to, because we're in the middle of the lake, in a boat that's about to sink, it's so full of fish. But Jesus has something else in mind. And he simply says to Peter, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. See, Jesus was saying, until now, your purpose was limited to bringing live fish to their death. But I am calling you to join me in bringing spiritually dead people to life. And Peter didn't need much convincing after what he had just experienced. Because when they arrive at shore, he left all he had and followed. Now, as a fisherman, Peter had just received the big one. He had just received a couple of boats so full of fish they're about to sink. That equals, for a fisherman, a pretty big payday. And he just walks away from it. Think back to a time, perhaps, when, when you wanted something big. Maybe it was a big sale, a big commission. Maybe a time when, when you wanted that big raise, that big promotion, when you wanted to, to be the captain of the team, or maybe just wanted to make the team. 
Maybe you're waiting to get entrance into that school of your choice. And then finally, you got it. The email came, the letter arrived, the news came that you got it. It is yours. What would it take for you in that moment to just walk away in an instant? What in the world would have such an impact upon you that you would be willing to just walk away and to totally refocus your priorities, your purpose, and your mission in life? What in the world could do that? Well, there's no doubt that witnessing such a specific and personal miracle had rocked Peter's life. There's no question about that. But I think there's another contributing factor. Actually, I think there's three contributing factors as well. I think there's three qualities in Peter that allowed him to actually be open to that call. Allowed him to be open to accept the call that Jesus brought to him that day. And I want to suggest to you that if these three qualities exist within us, then we too stand ready to experience and to respond to the power of Jesus in our lives. First of all, what was Peter's reaction when he looks up and he sees Jesus sitting in his boat completely uninvited, and then tells Peter to go fishing. What was his response? Well, he says this in verse 5. He says, Master, we have worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now, Peter's professional training told him that this was pointless. The fish weren't biting. You don't fish in deep water, and you don't fish in the daytime. Yet, he was willing to cast his nets when and where he was asked, solely based upon Jesus' word. Simply put, even with a limited knowledge of who Jesus was at that point in their relationship, he respected him enough to obey. So if you're taking notes, the first thing is obedience. Obedience is the first thing that Peter demonstrates for us. And there are times where we may find ourselves in situations where we're being obedient to what we see Jesus doing, where we're following Jesus, we'll go against the grain. There may be times where we know what we need to do, we know what the obedient thing is, but, but from a human standpoint, it doesn't make sense. Or we think, if I do that, then, then I feel this fear well up inside me because I'm going to be labeled hyper-conservative. What if I have to stand alone against an injustice and nobody rallies behind me? It's a challenge. And fear can rise up in these things. But how different would this story be if Peter had trusted in his own understanding? How different would this story be if Peter's fear had ruled the day? What if he had not pushed his boat into the deep waters? What if he had not cast his nets? What if he had not trusted Jesus? And I believe there are many who will never appreciate the reality of Jesus in their lives because they've never left the shallow waters. Some people at times, I think, mistake a longevity of time with Jesus for a depth of trust and obedience to Jesus. But don't be mistaken by that. Don't mistake longevity for depth when it comes to our relationships. Think of it this way. Imagine most of us have taken a vacation or at some time been down to the ocean, maybe down in the Caribbean. And have you ever been to an ocean where you can just, you can just walk? You just walk and walk, and it seems like you walk forever, and and, and you're really only into your knees. And you look back and you're thinking, man, look how far I've come from the shore. Like, I, I've walked out a few hundred meters from the shore and I'm only in up to my knees. Sure, you've come a long distance, but how deep in are you really? But then finally you reach the end of the sandbar. 
and it just suddenly drops off and plunges. And at that moment, it just got real. At that moment, we have a choice. Do we keep going or do we back up? Will I leave this place of safety where I'm just in up to my knees and I'm fairly warm and comfortable? Do I take that one more step and enter into the deep waters? Because as we enter into the deep waters, the dangers increase. If you hadn't learned to swim in the shallows, you're going to struggle in the deep waters. And you certainly don't want to be alone, caught in the deep waters of the ocean, all by yourself. And I fear that many followers are only in up to their knees. Because there might be some area of their lives where we just have not fully trusted Jesus with everything. To take that step and to get into the deep waters with him. So as you look at this example of Peter, of the obedience that he displayed, is it possible that you're playing in the shallow end? And today there's a challenge for you to push out in the deeper waters. You know, Peter was willing to head out into those deep waters with Jesus based upon obedience to his word alone, based upon trust that he had Jesus with him. But he possessed another quality that actually allowed him to do that. Because some people may be sitting here today thinking, yeah, if I'm honest, I am in the shallow waters, but there's something stopping me from going out. And perhaps it's the second quality that Peter displays. The second quality, which is humility. You see, after the massive catch of fish comes in, Peter is struck with the initial reality of who Jesus is. And and at that time, in verse 8, it says that he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. You see, he knows that he's standing in divine presence. And he feels like he is a sinner in that moment who has no chance with God. But what Peter doesn't understand is that this sense of being less than God, this sense of being less than holy, is exactly where he needed to be. Because that posture of humility is something God can work with. But so often in our lives, so often in my own life, the opposite position is true. Because left unchallenged, our natural human tendency leans toward pride. The pride, which is this state of self-reliance that leads to self-confidence. We find ourselves saying things like, I got it. I got it. I can handle it. I, I don't need any help. Or, thanks God, I'll take it from here. And we move on. As I thought about this concept this week, it reminded me of when I was a little guy, about five years old, and, and I was learning, like, like many of you probably, I was learning to ride a bike. And my parents went and got me my first big boy bike training wheels on it. So at first I'd spin around on that, but the day came where my dad took the training wheels off. And then he would, he would run behind kind of holding the seat as my confidence built and as my, as my balance increased. And it reached a point, it wasn't too long, where I didn't need dad anymore. Why? Because this guy's got it. Right? I got it. Full of confidence. Full of independence. I got it. So later on, that first day I learned to ride my bike, I thought, hey, I'm going to go to the park. And so I go get my bike by myself. And it took me a, a few tries, but eventually I get up, a little wobbly at first, but then we straightened out the handlebars, and, and off we go down the road. It's the wind going through my hair. This guy's king of the world, going to the park, just down the road and off to the left. To the left. We never practiced turning. For that matter, we never actually practiced stopping. (laughs) And with a fair bit of speed built up, I had a choice to make, either go into the intersection or to bail into the ditch. 
I had scratched knees. You can probably guess which one I chose as I bailed into the ditch that day. You know, it's hard to admit that we have weaknesses, and it's hard to admit that we don't always have it all together. That as, as Paul later on would write to the church, he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. You can also look at that and go, when I am humble, then I am strong. Because it's only then that we open the door to God's resources. It's only then in that posture of humility that we allow him to come in and to work through us. Peter stands in his boat with his nets, with all of his efforts and all of his talent and experience, and he caught nothing. But he humbly placed those into the hands of Jesus. And the results were beyond his belief. Because he allowed Jesus to do his work through them. So Peter's humility did not really make him insignificant. That's sometimes the fear that we have is that if I'm humble, I'll become insignificant. But that's not necessarily the case. That's not what we see in the story. Because his strength emerged from the humility. And his strength comes from acknowledging his weakness and letting God direct the work that happened that day. And this is allowed, this allowed him to display a third quality. The third quality of commitment. Now you've probably heard the term before, all in. I'm all in. That's what Peter was that day when they got back to shore. He was all in. Verse 11 says, they pulled their boats up to the shore and they left everything and followed him. See, Peter left everything on the shore that day, that, that massive catch of fish, his boats, his nets, his family. He left it all. Why? Because he had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. Because the miracle he encountered hit home and it changed everything for him. And so that when the call comes from Jesus to refocus his life so that others may have an opportunity for that experience with Jesus too, there is nothing in his life that is more important in that moment. Now the words of Jesus that he spoke were, from now on you will fish for people. Now those words were spoken in the presence of Peter, but they really echo throughout time. They really echo to each and every single one of us as well. Because Jesus has called us to the same mission. He, he phrased it differently at the end of his ministry when he said it this way. He said, go and make disciples of all nations. So does that mean that all of us, that, that anybody who decides to become a follower of Christ, does that mean that we have to leave our jobs, we have to leave our families, we have to leave our schools, we have to leave our homes? No, it doesn't. There are some people who will be called to that, though. There are some people that God will call to first, first, uh, full-time pastoral ministry. There are people that God will call to be missionaries. And those people will be called to leave all behind, to go to the farthest ends of the world to share the good news. They'll be called to fishing holes that are near, to fishing holes that are far, and to some that are in global in reach. For me, that was the call that I received, the full-time ministry. Nadine and I faced a moment of decision. Will we leave our careers? Will we leave the comforts of the life we built for ourselves? Will we leave our friends? Will we leave what we know to heed the call? And obviously the answer is yes, because here we are. And God called us to our fishing hole here in Edmonton. But some people here will be called to that. We, we don't talk about this very often, and, and I think we need to talk about it more often, that, that if you are here, if you are a youth or a young adult, or maybe you're an adult and you know you've had that call, but like me, you pushed it off for 10 years. Until you finally listened. 
If you are here and you think that God has called you, or there's, there's this, this nagging sense within you that, that God has called you to full-time ministry, but you're just not quite sure, I encourage you to make an appointment to come talk to me. Let me help you discern that and work through it and see if that is indeed what God has destined for your life. I can tell you that if that is the case, until that answer is questioned, until that question is answered, or until you take that step of faith, you will never find peace and you will never find joy because God will not force you to do it, but nor will he let you forget what he destined you for. So I encourage you to press in if you think that is part of the calling that God has placed upon you. Most of us, however, will not be called to full-time vocational ministry, but you are still called. And you'll never, ever outgrow that calling. Because first and foremost, the call that I'm talking about here is a call to refocus our priorities, this call to being refocused to the point where nothing is more important than sharing Jesus with people's lives. That doesn't mean it consumes every word of every conversation, but it does mean that regardless of the season of life you're in, that regardless of your abilities, regardless of your profession, you need to answer the question, where's your fishing hole? Where's your fishing hole that God has called you to? I know a youth who a couple years ago identified his fishing hole as his high school. And so he started a Christian club at lunchtime, and he established an alpha program that met in his high school. I know a young adult student who identified his fishing hole as his university biology classroom. And so on a regular basis, he respectfully but consistently defended a biblical worldview of life. I know a guy in his 30s that had the privilege of counseling and marrying him and his wife, and he has identified his hole as his home, where he raises up and instructs his children in the way that God would have them live their lives. And in one of the most beautiful testimonies I've ever heard, for every day of their marriage, when he walks in the door at the end of the day, they drop what they're doing, they hold hands, and they pray. Every day at 5 o'clock. I know a guy in his 50s who he has identified his fishing hole as his office, his workplace. He owns a company, and so he, he lives his faith very openly. And he, and he shares it with people who have questions and want to know more. And he prays for his staff. And once a year, he shuts his office down, and he pays for them to go on a missions trip with him. I know a guy in his 80s. More accurately, I knew a guy in his 80s. A guy named Les, whose fishing hole was the nursing home that he ended up being in. And it destroyed him inside at first that he wasn't with his wife anymore and that that he couldn't be in the ministries of the church. And and he felt like this was all ripped away from him. But as he and I met, and I kept saying, Les, you are not without purpose. We never stop having purpose. What is your purpose where you find yourself? He identified that nursing home as his fishing hole. And so he got to know the names of everybody else in there. He prayed for them. He handled Bible tracts to them. He would go meet with them, make his rounds with them, and get to know them, and he would share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And when the day came that I performed his funeral, in tribute to less, no other verse came to mind than in the book of Acts when it says, Now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. And I thought to myself, when less had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. And I pray it be said of me that when Mark had served God's purposes in his generation, he fell asleep. It does not matter how young or how old you are. All of us are called to go fishing. 
Where's your fishing hole? Where is your fishing hole? That card you have for Alpha with that name on it is an opportunity to go to your fishing hole and do some fishing. I challenge you to consider those questions. Where do you find yourself in the midst of Jesus' call? Where do you find yourself in this need to refocus priorities according to this call? You know, you know if you're struggling to live out these, these ideas of obedience, or maybe it's humility, or maybe it's this characteristic of commitment to Jesus, th- these are tough questions to answer if we're struggling with these characteristics. Because maybe if you're struggling with those things, you may not even realize that you are a fisherman. You not even realize that you've been called to that. And if that's the case, then I want to challenge you today to commit to join us on this 12-week journey. To come and learn what it means to find a fishing hole and to go fishing. To find what it means to refocus our priorities so that that becomes a premier importance in our lives. It's a challenge I offer to you today. I also invite you, if you'd stand for closing prayer right now as well. And as you stand, perhaps you are here and as you think about these things, the reality is you're still sitting on the shore. And, and you're, you're just not willing to trust Jesus. You're not willing to go out and start fishing. Perhaps you're sitting in the boat with Jesus. But you're filled with doubts and, and, and you're not willing to place that trust in him yet to push out into those deeper waters. Or, or perhaps, perhaps you have pushed out to the deeper waters of Jesus and you're sitting there and, and there's nothing stopping you but yourself because you're more convinced of your unworthiness than of your calledness. All of you are called. All of us are called to cast that net in the power of the Spirit that's with us. Jesus' call to all of his followers is to refocus the mission of our lives. Ultimately, that we would go fishing for people. And so the question I leave you with today Where's your fishing hole? And come back next week. I'm going to teach you how to fish. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you called us. We thank you that you know us enough and you love us enough to to individually and specifically pursue us. God, I pray that our minds and our hearts would be open to hear that call, that we would not just push it away. That when the challenges come, that we would see that these these are not convictions to press down, but Lord, that these are areas that we need to lean into, that we may grow deeper in our faith with you and walk further into those deeper waters with you. Because only there, Jesus, only there, when we are weak, do we discover your strength. And in that place, we come to fully understand what it means to be in relationship with you, Jesus. What an awesome opportunity. May we consider these things this week and press into the deep waters.